Hi, friends, and welcome to season two of the Cosmic Chats with Debbie Sugarbaker podcast. I am Debbie, your host, and the creator of what I believe is a sacred space in which I have conversations with individuals from all sectors who are dedicated to elevating consciousness around different aspects of life. With a background in ghostwriting and editing books, content development, and medical journalism, as well as many other side jobs, and several years' experience working for the international nonprofit called the Kabbalah Center, I bring you enlightening conversations with people whose work, knowledge, energy, and insight have helped me open my mind and perspective, alchemize perceived negative situations, live in a healthier body, and experience the world in a deeper, more wondrous way on a daily basis. I also desire to share energy and wisdom that I received from my spiritual teacher, Karen Berg, who was the founder and spiritual director of the Kabbalah Center until her passing in 2020. My aim is that you, the listener, are able to receive what you need to create new possibilities and find greater levels of expansion in your health, relationships, and business. It is my honor to connect with you and be a part of your process. I believe that we are here to support each other on our earthly journey, and I also believe that life's challenges are most effectively tackled from the inside out. Each episode of my show presents another way to do that. Thank you so much for listening, for supporting, and for being with me. I hope you enjoy. Hi, everybody, and welcome to today's Cosmic Chat with Debbie Sugarbaker. I am so excited to be here with you today. I have a very special guest on the show, and we're talking about a very important topic that I believe can really change lives. I have Beverly Engel. She is an internationally recognized psychotherapist and a world-renowned and acclaimed advocate for victims of physical, sexual, and emotional abuse. She has also written self-help yeah. on the t- a range of topics around abuse and recovery. And she really has a unique approach to shame and to recovering from abuse and to growing from it and through it. And I'm so excited that she's here to share with us today about her latest book, Freedom at Last, Healing the Shame of Sexual Abuse. So Beverly, thank you so much for joining me. You're welcome. Glad to be here. So I wanted to just start with a few questions. You know, how did you get into this work? I feel at this point, you've really contributed so much value to people's lives over a number of years. And I'm curious, how did you get into this? Well, probably for two reasons. One is that I had a very abusive childhood myself. Mm -hmm. And as it's true for many psychotherapists, we get into it because we want to heal ourselves. We want to find out you know, what went wrong and how we can change. And and so that was probably the primary motivation for studying psychology. Uh, And then I always had a really strong desire to help people. And when I grew up, there were two careers for women. You could be a nurse or you could be a teacher if you wanted to help people. I didn't even know about being a psychotherapist. Being a psychotherapist to me was like being a, a psychiatrist. And that was just totally out of my realm in terms of my finances. And, you know, I I couldn't imagine myself going through school and becoming a psychiatrist, becoming a doctor would just take too much time and money. So 
I found a way by being a psychotherapist. I specialized in marriage and family therapy and was able to get my degree. So it was the need to find out to how to help myself and then how to help other people. Wow. Amazing. And I wanted to mention that today we're talking about your latest book, which is about sexual abuse. And I know I'd heard in another podcast something very interesting that you said you had started out in a practice. And then at some point in the 60s or 70s, you got kind of like a wave of people who were coming to therapy for sexual abuse. I just found that really interesting. Maybe you can just talk on that for a moment. Well, we still don't know exactly why it happened, but yes, it's like the floodgates open. Nobody, hardly anybody was coming in and saying they were sexually abused. And then all of a sudden people started coming in and acknowledging it and admitting it and wanting help. It kind of came all at once and nobody really figured out how that happened. There were a couple of really important cases in my area, but I, but this was nationwide, This in, the sudden influx of victims of sexual abuse. Just before we kind of jump in, we're going to be discussing your latest book, but I wanted to just clarify for the audience, because some people, they think of sexual abuse and, you know, obviously the mind can go to the extreme, right? But can you just talk on maybe that there can be more subtle forms of sexual abuse or things that you may not even think of, or, you know, that a person may not even remember something, right. just kind of getting indicators in your life. You kind of have patterns that happen and you say like, wait, maybe did something happen to me or even small indicators? Like I remember speaking with someone, she said, you know, I always like to cover up and wear jackets and I always feel like I need to cover myself. And mm -hmm. it's kind of little subconscious things that maybe you picked up from an interaction in childhood that may not have been so extreme, but it was imprinted enough in that psyche that the person then behaves in certain ways as an adult. Yeah, and the key to that may, may be that the person felt deeply shamed, uh, like certainly being photographed nude is sexual abuse, but we don't necessarily think of that. And sure, there's the typical parent maybe taking a baby picture of somebody nude on a fur rug or something, but we're not talking about that. We're talking about kids who were continually you know, photographed nude and parents who walk around nude. The key to it with the subtle types of sexual abuse, it's it's the intention of the adult. It's the intention to be sexually stimulated or to sexually stimulate a child. That's the differentiation. So yes, it can be inappropriate, even, even inappropriate looks or inappropriate questions if the kid is a, a teenager, wanting to know what they did when they went on a date. Did the boyfriend touch them? Did they do anything? That's inappropriate to be asking a teenager or parents just, you know, parents wanting the child to sleep with them way past the age of sleeping with the parent. And not just because the, the kid is scared and because there's a lightning storm outside, but wanting the, to continue to sleep with them. And then often what happens is when the kid goes to sleep, the parent would sexually abuse the child. So it's everything from, you know, not having boundaries like barging in when they're taking a shower, barging in when they're on the toilet. Uh, and again, it's a, you know, the, for the intention of stimulating themselves or the child. This is the parent who's just doesn't have good boundaries. That's one thing. But okay. there's this feeling of constantly being watched, constantly being exploited, questioned, you know, and then certainly inappropriate touch of any kind, you know, of the breasts or the vagina or the anus, continuing to bathe a child into when they're in nine, 10 years old. 
you know, that's totally inappropriate. The parent may just be a little bit disturbed, and that's why they do it. But most times, if they're bathing a child who's nine or 10 years old, it's for the sexual abuse aspect. Right. And obviously, I mean, we've been talking, even mentioning parents, but, you know, these kinds of interactions can happen in any situation with friends. Hi, guys. I'm quickly interrupting this episode to let you know that you can now support the Cosmic Chats on Patreon. Check out my page, Debbie Sugarbaker Cosmic Chats, and feel free to become a monthly donor. We so appreciate it, and it helps us to keep this show going, to get this information, this wisdom, this energy out there on the waves and touching hearts and souls like yours. Thank you so much in advance and enjoy the rest of the episode. Friends of the family or distant family members, babysitters, etc. So absolutely. We're we're not just zeroing in. It's not necessarily that the abuse would come from a parent that could come from anybody or even older children who may have gone through that experience and then they become perpetrate like kind of imitating what they experience to somebody else because that's what you know kids do, right? Yeah, yeah. Kids do it to to imitate what was done to them, to act out what was done to them, to that's a way of kind of clearing what happened or or adjusting to what happened. But it's sometimes kids get really angry because they were sexually abused and they're actually taking their anger out on younger children. And it's an issue of power and control, which happens with all perpetrators. It's about having power over the child. So it isn't all always innocent acting out. It isn't always repeating. Sometimes there's a real rage there. Wow. It's interesting that we're having this conversation today. I find it very special because it's actually the launch day of your new book. I know you've written a plethora of books on topics related to sexual abuse, physical abuse, emotional abuse. There's a great book, by the way, called The Nice Girl Syndrome. That's actually the the first book that I read of yours that really hit home for me, how to stop being manipulated and abused. And I really recommend it for women. It's very eye-opening. I awakened to patterns that I wasn't even aware of that were kind of running my show. And then it allowed me to take my power back. So thank you for that. But what is it that made you decide to write this book at this time? Well, I've been focusing on shame for about the last 10 years, researching it, working with clients about it. I wrote a book about the shame of emotional abuse. That was my last book. And I just wanted to kind of come full circle. My very first book was on sexual abuse. It was called The Right to Innocence. And that was 20 years ago. I kind of wanted to come full circle because people who are sexually abused suffer from shame probably more than any other victim. Sexual abuse is so debilitating, so humiliating. It's so life-changing that I wanted to focus on the shame aspect of childhood sexual abuse. Okay. When we discuss shame, what are some of the indicators? I think it would be helpful to just bring them out today. So what are some indicators of shame? Like what are the thought processes that somebody might have if their life is being ruled by shame? Because the tricky thing about shame is you don't even realize that you're being owned by it until perhaps some behaviors or something kind of brings you to the point where you say like, wait a second, why am I doing this? Because this is not necessarily me. It's not necessarily what I what I love to do, what I like to do, where I want to be. So why am I having these maybe self-sabotaging, self-defeating behaviors? What are some of the, I just mentioned two of them, but what are, yeah. what are more of those indicators? 
Well, overall, it's a deep feeling or deep belief that you are worthless, unlovable, damaged, defiled in some way. So you always feel less than other people. You feel self-conscious. You're judging yourself constantly. That's kind of overall based on the belief that something's wrong with you. But you just mentioned there's self-destructiveness, self-sabotaging behaviors. There's reenactment behaviors where you're consistently reenacting the abuse in a way, not literally. That doesn't mean that you're abusing a child or, you know, somebody's abusing you. But you could be choosing partners who are something like the perpetrator. You could be choosing environments that are dangerous, like going to a bar and not watching your drink and, you know, putting yourself at risk. Revictimization is very common, especially with women who are sexually abused. Feelings of, like I said, just feelings of being less than and that, of course, affecting your relationships and who you choose to be involved with. Self-harm is another. Addictions, very, very common. Eating disorders are very, very common. So there's just a whole a whole list of effects of sh- the shame of sexual abuse. Yeah. Wow. And I even, I remember reading even like suicidal thoughts, like kind of like recurring right. suicidal thoughts, like I shouldn't be here. You know, I don't really deserve to have a place because of that deep shame. And right. it's interesting. I just wanted to mention because I've read other books of yours. I can recommend another one, which is called It Wasn't Your Fault. And it talks more about, I mean, it can talk about sexual abuse, but it also talks about other forms of more subtle abuse that people went through. And then you may, in terms of re-victimization or recreating situations, it's not the same shame because it's not the same root, but that shame even if it's from any type of emotional abuse or things that we picked up in childhood can can make us to recreate situations where we are victimized again, even if it's like in a work setting, in a more subtle place, mm-hmm. you constantly find yourself like, why can't I just be kind of like the victor of my life? I continually find myself the victim. It could be that shame is underneath, is, is what's causing that, right? Right, right. Closely connected to shame is self-blame. And the problem with shame is that it encourages people to not externalize their anger, mm-hmm. but to but to internalize it, to blame themselves. And as we know, children tend to blame themselves for everything anyway. The cliche of the child blaming themselves for, a, for their parents' divorce. So self-blame is a huge problem. So if you blame yourself for the sexual abuse and you're not able to, to express the anger that you feel at being humiliated, at being invaded, then you're going to feel bad about yourself constantly. You're going to feel less than. You're going to feel judged by other people, that you're worthless and unlovable. And that, of course, is going to affect everything. It's certainly going to affect your choice of partners, your choice of friends, maybe even your choice of career. And like you said, you'll find yourself in situations where you're consistently being re-victimized because you, deep down inside, you feel like you deserve it. You deserve to be treated poorly. You certainly don't deserve to be treated with respect. Right. One of the things that I love about your books is that you always present a remedy for these situations. For example, I know that in the nice girl syndrome, you bring people through a process of really seeing how the effects of what 
the shame is doing. And then, you know, journaling. And in the other book, we learned about self-compassion and reframing things. For example, you might be in a situation where you feel like you haven't achieved X, Y, and Z, or you, you just can't manage to push yourself forward in this area of your life. And so you're constantly in this circle of a, why isn't happening? Why can't I do this? And just reframing that with self-compassion, well, it's understandable that I would feel like that. It's understandable that I would feel frustration. I mean, and just that small reframe is so powerful. So I know that just putting it out there for people that part of Beverly's work is that she really presents these incredible remedies and doesn't just leave you with the problem. She, she takes you through a process in the book. What is the program or the remedies that you present in this latest book? Well, the first step is to face the truth. And girls or victims of sexual abuse have a very hard time facing the truth. They have a hard time facing the fact that they were sexually abused, especially if it was someone they loved or someone they respected. They would rather blame themselves than face the fact that this person they love and respect could treat them in this way, could hurt them in this way. So facing what happened to them, facing that it was sexual abuse, learning what sexual abuse is, as you alluded to earlier, even the subtle forms, and you know, just really coming out of denial about what happened. Memory is a factor here, as we know, victims of sexual abuse very often, if not always, kind of dissociate. They leave their body as a survival mechanism uh, when the abuse is happening. So memory is a factor because if you're out of your body, you're not going to have the typical memory. And so what's really important for them to learn is that flashbacks and triggers are memories. They're not the kind of memory we think of in terms of a visual but they are memories. When you have a flashback every time you smell a certain aftershave, or you have a flashback every time you go to a certain place, or you have a flashback when you're around a certain person, or if you're triggered around a certain person, you just feel awful every time you go see your grandfather and you don't want to get close to him. You don't want to touch him. And everybody else says, well, he's such a nice, loving man. Why don't you want to go sit in his lap or whatever? Well, it's because maybe your grandfather abused you. So coming to those difficult possibilities, just opening up to the possibility. Yes, your grandfather was loving, everybody loves him. And he also may have been the one that sexually abused you. So it's kind of putting together the pieces of what happens in your life and honoring those pieces. Everybody's kind of afraid of falsely accusing someone, you know, I don't want to falsely accuse him because I don't have a real clear memory. You don't have to have a real clear memory to know what happened. You can know it in your gut. You can know it by your behaviors, all the symptoms we've talked about. If you're addicted to to alcohol or drugs, if your whole life has been chaotic, if you have difficulty with a partner, you don't want to be touched in certain areas of your body, or you've been promiscuous all your life. So facing the truth is a very important first step. The next step is to allow yourself to have those feelings that are connected to your memories or non-memories, the feelings of being abused, acknowledging that you were abused, and then allowing yourself to have the pain and the, the fear and the sense of betrayal and the shame. Let yourself have those feelings. And as we know, survivors of any kind of trauma very often are numb. They're numb to their feelings. So I give some exercises to help people start to get in touch with their emotions 
And one is called the check-in, where just every day, once a day, you check in with yourself. You go inside. I know that's a difficult concept, but you go inside and you ask yourself four questions, starting with, am I angry? Then am I sad? Am I afraid? Do I feel a shame or guilt? So you ask yourself those four things in that order and start to connect with your feelings. And then there's more steps to it. But basically, it's just beginning to understand that you have feelings and that that you have a right to your feelings and that you have a right to express your feelings. And the next step connected to that, connecting to your suffering, and that connects with self-compassion, like you mentioned. That's like saying to yourself, I'm so sorry that this happened to you. I'm so sorry that you were betrayed in this way. I'm so sorry that you were hurt in this way. And really giving yourself compassion for your suffering. Then the next step is to allow yourself to be angry, to stop blaming yourself and get angry. And that's really important. We know that anger is empowering. Uh, we know that it's a good way to step out of the victim role is to be angry and take that anger out in a constructive way, like kneeling down beside your bed and hitting with your fists or put your head in a pillow and scream or even writing a letter to the perpetrator that you don't send or walking around your house and talking to the perpetrator out loud. You know, so there's lots and lots of ways of getting angry. Those are equally effective in getting your anger out. We now have rage rooms. I was going to say, I just heard about a rage room in the neighborhood. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Those are great. Those are great. Not everybody's willing to act out their anger in that way. A lot of people who were sexually abused were also emotionally and physically abused at home. And they may have had a violent parent. And so they're they're really turned off to any physical violence. If they, they can't imagine themselves getting physically violent because they would be reminded that they're being like their abusive father or whatever. Right. So not everybody can do it physically, but it is great if you can. And then the next step is tell someone. Please tell someone. You don't have to report the perpetrator. That may be way down the line. You may never do that. But you do need to, to break the silence to tell the secret. That's part of your shame is holding in that secret. So tell someone, you need to be, choose the person very, very carefully. It could be your best friend. It could be your partner. It shouldn't be a family member being your first person because family members tend to protect the perpetrator. Family members don't want to believe that that could happen to their child. Yeah, so, because if, if it was like, let's say you suspected a babysitter or a friend of a friend, it's a lot, even to mention it to a parent, then, then they would say, look, wait, where was I? You know, what happened? Like, there's a whole, there's a lot involved there, right? Yes, yes. So a best friend, a partner, if that person is a compassionate person, and if that person has some understanding about victimization, in our culture, we tend to blame the victim. Okay, so if you don't tell someone who has that belief, who has the belief that there's no victims in the world. We're all responsible for our behavior. We create our behavior. If they have any of those kind of philosophies, don't tell that person. Because what you're you're doing is trying to break the silence and get rid of some of your shame. But you're also wanting some support. And you're not wanting someone to ask you, well, what did you do? 
or why were you around them or why didn't you tell someone? No, no. You want someone who's very compassionate, who understands about victimization and who understands about abuse in some way. Okay, so pick that person and tell that person and then you can choose from then on. But that very first person that you tell needs to be a very specific kind of person. Okay. Therapist would probably also, a lot of people have therapists now. So, yeah, yeah. A therapist, of course. Or if you're in a support group for survivors of sexual abuse, that would be a perfect place to tell it. And believe it or not, I've had groups before where there were people in the group who never tell their story, even in a group of supportive people. So, if you're in a group, that definitely would be a good place. And of course, if you're if you're in therapy, a lot of people are in therapy nowadays because it is more affordable and more accessible. But there's still people who don't go to therapy. And you want your best friend and or your partner to know about it and be supportive. Uh, that's going to increase the intimacy between the two of you. It's probably going to change the relationship in a very positive way. A lot of people are afraid of telling their partner because they have the false belief that if their partner knows the partner's going to be turned off sexually. And that often doesn't happen, mostly doesn't happen. There's the rare time when it happens, and that's because probably the partner was sexually abused themselves. Right. And they're in denial. So then they get um, triggered by that. Right. It feels like shame triggers shame. I mean, it happens a lot on all different levels. Absolutely. And in relationships in general, that's why it's so important that we have tools to be able to heal ourselves from the inside and really take that responsibility for our healing. I just wanted to briefly interrupt this episode to remind you that you can find all of my cosmic chats with video on my IGTV handle at Debbie Sugarbee. That's at D-E-B-B-I-E-S-U-G-A-R-B. There, you can also find a link in my bio to support my work or to sign up for a one-on-one Theta Healing session with me. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And we don't want to pass our shame on to our children. Right. That's a really important factor here. People who are sexually abused kind of go one way or the other. They either, if they're aware of the abuse and and they're acknowledging it, they will often become helicopter parents. And they won't want their kid to go ever go spend the night with a friend or ever go out on a date or ever be out in the world. They're overprotective. And they that can be very damaging to a child. Go the other way. We know that there are people who were sexually abused who never really acknowledged it, um, who are blind, deaf, and dumb when it comes to their kids. There can be danger right there. There can be somebody in, in their child's life where there's all kinds of red flags that something is going on and the parent just doesn't see it. So we don't want to pass it on to our kids. So tell someone and then self-forgiveness. We need to encourage people who have been uh, shamed and who have been alcoholics, drug addicts, compulsive overeaters, compulsive gamblers who've been stealing. Stealing is a very common symptom of sexual abuse who had a kind of a difficult past We want them to connect the dots between those behaviors and the sexual abuse. And that will lead to what you talked about, self-understanding. It's understandable that I became an alcoholic because I was sexually abused. I never told anyone. I felt so horrible about myself. I wanted to numb myself. And I started with alcohol very young. And 
became an alcoholic. But it's understandable. It's not an excuse for your behavior. It's just an explanation. And it's connecting those dots so that you don't carry that horrible shame about it. Um, there's one more step that I talk about. There's a couple of aspects of it, and that is stop your shame-inducing behaviors, okay? So you can do all this, forgive yourself, start feeling better, but if you're continuing shame-inducing behaviors, such as sexual addiction, sexual compulsion, a need to be in power when you're involved with a, a partner, getting involved with S&M and BD, those are all reenactments and they're all shame inducing. And so you need to really look at your current life and make sure that you're not continually shaming yourself, like shaming yourself by being with a partner who doesn't respect you and who treats you terribly. Look at your life and say, okay, I've healed a lot. Now I've got to stop repeating those shame inducing behaviors. Powerful. It's been very comprehensive. Thank you so much. For sharing all of this insight, even if just one person hears it and is able to really take in what you're saying or find a book or find help or release themselves from shame, each person is a whole universe in themselves. So I so appreciate you taking the time to come. And like I said to everybody, I really recommend Beverly's books. You can buy the book on Amazon, right? Yes. Amazon at Barnes and Noble. And it's also an audible. Yes. And people can check it out there. And it's available Thursday, December 15th. You can check out this book, but there are also a number of other books about, about relationships. The Nice Girl Syndrome is a great book for women and empowerment. And is there anything else, any other recommendations, final ones you would give to somebody who might be hearing this today and perhaps is resonating with what you're saying? Just I really encourage them, if they can afford therapy or they do feel safe enough to go to therapy, by all means, do that. But I think my book will also help them. Like you said, I have steps, I have remedies. So don't hesitate to get the help that you need, either through therapy or through group therapy or through a book. Um, You know, you may not think that shame is affecting you that much, but believe me, it is. You may think you're past the sexual abuse. You may think I put that in the past. I don't ever think about it, but sit down and think about how it has affected you. Do you have your issues with sexuality? You just don't have any sexual desire or have you gone the other way and you're promiscuous? Do you cheat on your partner often, even though you don't want to, even though you love your partner, you you feel kind of compelled to to do that? Do you have nightmares or do you have Um, sexual fantasies that are disturbing. Do an inventory of your behaviors so that you can recognize the shame that's in your life. Believe me, every victim of sexual abuse feels tremendous shame. And unless you address it directly, you're going to continue to suffer from it. So reach out, get help, read books, do something to address shame in your life. Beautiful. Because the goal is healing and the goal is freedom and the goal is really feeling good in your life and in your skin. And thank you so much for presenting this topic, which is actually very sensitive and can be a heavy topic, but I feel like you've really presented it in a way that's digestible and that can reach people. So thank you so much, Beverly, for joining. You're welcome. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. hope that this episode nourished your spirit and or opened you to a deeper level 
of connection or a higher perspective. Please subscribe, share it with your friends and family, and leave me a review. I appreciate your support. You can also take a screenshot and tag me on Instagram and I'll add it to my story. Until next time, be well, take care, lots of love, magic, joy, opportunities, and blessing always. Bye-bye. Cosmic Chats with Debbie Sugarbaker is a production of Yali Christina Podcast Services.